So at some time, the latter half of the first century in the late 60s, meaning before there was a 100, and the Jewish people have been in diaspora, dispersion, or in Hebrew, galut, exile, since the Babylonian exile. After the Babylonians conquered the kingdom of Judah, part of the Jewish population was deported into slavery, and although Cyrus the Great, the Persian, who conquered Babylon, permitted the Jews to return back to their homeland, some of the Jews stayed in Babylon. And that was the beginning of the diaspora. In fact, in Alexandria, the capital city of Egypt, in the first century, 40% of that population in Egypt was Jewish. Around the time Acts was written, there were about 5 million Jews I don't know how they did the census, but there were about five million Jews in the known world, and almost all of them lived outside of Jerusalem, Judah, Palestine. Yes, it was Palestine then. So in all of this time, there were Jews living everywhere. I mean, they're Torah-learning, Hebrew-speaking Jews living in these foreign Gentile lands. And so now they've come home to Israel, Palestine, Judah, Judea, um, for the festival of Shavuot, say that with me, Shavuot, <laughs> simply means sevens in Hebrew. So it's called the Feast of Weeks, the Festival of Weeks, because it happens 49 days after the Passover. Passover is the holiday where the Jews celebrate being liberated by God, released from slavery, and Shavuot is the holiday where they celebrate getting the tablets with the law on it given to Moses. So everybody journeys to Jerusalem to hang out for this holiday. And that's what's happening right now. This story in Acts, Jesus has died. He's made some resurrection appearances. He's had some snacks with folks, proving that he's really evil, able to eat. He's got some fish going on, touching, people touching his wombs, and all that kind of stuff's happening. And now, now the, now the, Disciples are gathered in an upper room. And all this stuff that Bertram read, I made him read the hard words, all this stuff that he read is happening while the disciples up in this room, the wind is coming, the blowing is making such a noise that all the people that are gathered come outside of the room to find out what in the heck is going on. And they're real people from real places. I mean, these names are ancient and we don't know them, but if you're a Parthenian or a Mede or an Elamite, you're from modern-day Iran. And if you're from Mesopotamia, you're from modern-day Iraq, Kuwait, and Syria, between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. If you're from Judea, you're from Judea, Palestine. If you're from Rome, you're from Rome, still Rome. But if you're from Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, or Phrygia, or Pamphylia, you're from Turkey. And if you're from Egypt, you're from Egypt. That works. But if you're from Cyrene, you're from Libya. So all of these are real towns with real people. If you're from Crete, you're from another part of Greece. And if you're Arabs, you are from Saudi Arabia. Isn't that wild? All of those people traveled all of that way to get to Jerusalem for this holiday. And they're standing and suddenly the the disciples who speak Aramaic, which is kind of like Hebrew, are speaking Aramaic, but they hear Crete. Speaking Aramaic, and they hear Libyan. 
speaking Aramaic and they hear Egyptian. That's wild. So this isn't about some kind of tongues that are made up that are, sound like gibberish, to be honest. This is about real languages in the mouths of people who shouldn't be able to speak them. Now these guys, these Jewish folks are used to hearing the Torah and all the Hebrew words in, in their own language, in their own context. But in this place, they're in a strange land and they are hearing this miraculous thing happen. The miracle is a miracle of communication. It's a miracle of understanding. It's a miracle of interpretation. And it's a miracle that has both a promise and a purpose. The promise is, Jesus says, go to Jerusalem and wait there. And when you get there, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and give you power so you can be my witnesses. And the purpose is, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and all over the earth. You will be my witnesses. Promise, purpose, and power to do the work. You'll be my witnesses. You'll testify. You will tell the stories of what the reign of God looks like right here, right now, so it can become on earth as it is in heaven. So what does it mean to be a witness? Thanks be to God, you know, we don't have to get our heads chopped off like the Christians did in the early church, and I'm not kidding. It was tough to be a witness in those days. But it means to report what your eyes have seen. It means to share what your ears have heard. It means to let people in on what your heart has come to understand. It means to report out on the close encounters you have had with the holy at work in the world. Call it God. Call that beautiful thing love. Call it spirit. I'm a caller mama because the words for spirit in Greek, pneuma, and in Hebrew, ruach, are feminine. So the encounter you have with this beautiful mama at work, she's working all the time. There's no place you go where there's no wind. And the word wind and spirit are synonyms. She's working all the time, working hard all the time. And I don't mean you're walking down the street and there's a $50 bill and it's stuck under some gum, but you see it anyway. You pick it up, you pretend like it's not yucky, and you think, oh my gosh, God gave me this $50 bill. That's luck. That's luck. It's good, but that's luck. God's not thinking, Jerry needs $50. Let me drop it. I'm Scott. No, I don't think so. She's too busy. But I think we've all had these really beautiful close encounters with love, with God's grace. And you, it touches you, something happens. You cry or you, you feel welled up, you feel healed, you feel moved, you feel shifted. In Howard Thurman's lecture, Mysticism and Social Action, he defined mysticism as the response of the individual to a personal encounter with God within her own soul. The response of an individual to a personal encounter with God within her own soul. Now, I don't think of myself as a mystic. I'm too loud. The most I can sit still for is like five minutes. I don't need meditation. I just can't do it. 
But if this is the definition of mysticism, uh, yeah, I'll sign up for this definition that there can be a moment in time where God will just really blow on you, blow through you. For me, I was a 30-something-year-old, troubled and, and down and needing a helping hand. Makes me think about a song lyric. But a relationship had broken up and I felt like a failure. I had sent myself to California, far away from my family, and I was hanging out with other sales reps at East McClendon Company, and we worked so hard for the money, another song lyric. But when we got through working hard for the money, we would go, like, get in the car and drive to Lake Tahoe and gamble or drive across the bridge to, to San Jose and drink margaritas and stuff. I mean, really, a lot of drinking and a lot of partying. I don't think we were alcoholics, but we were definitely medicated. <laughs> definitely medicated. And there was the next day, the medicine would still be with you a little bit. Like, oh, that was, that was a tequila gold with the worm in it, you know? And, and I don't know what their story is, but my story was that I was broken up and I was lonely and I was afraid. And I was running from this call to ministry and I thought, I don't know, maybe if I act really crazy, God won't keep calling me. Um, but I went to a church and I met this person who just like standing in line, you know, like you do here, just maybe read my face and said, you know, you should be reading Psalm 139. And that psalm became like this rewiring in my soul. Like, oh my goodness, what? I don't have to be perfect for God to love me. No matter where I go, God's going to love me. If I make my bed in heaven or hell, God's going to love me. If I run away and hide in the corners, God's going to see me. She got x-ray vision. And she knows what time it is. And for me, that experience, that both kind of getting in that icky I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know where I'm going place, but then also finding myself landing in the arms of a God who would never, ever, ever leave me was the thing that happened to me that opened up my ability to say yes to my call to ministry and stop running from it and to really also acknowledge that it wasn't like I was going to be perfect and do it, but that God was going to use my foolishness and my foibles and all my stuff. And it was also the beginning of me understanding, like at 31, that the relationship with God wasn't about me and Jesus being homies. I didn't get that growing up. I got personal salvation, me and Jesus, kicking it. Doesn't matter about the rest. You just do Jesus and you're going to go to heaven and to hell with everything else. But that time in my life opened up my heart in such a way that I began to understand that my relationship with God was about all the people's relationship with God and that I wasn't saved until everybody was saved and that there was no faith to have that was a one-on-one relationship, that the faith was about the faith of a community, like a whole people's faith, a whole community's faith. That's the faith of Israel. That's the faith of Jesus. That's the faith we inherit, a whole people are saved. So I don't know, have any of you ever had a dark night of the soul or a gray night of the soul or a scary, edgy, I don't know exactly what I'm doing moment where you didn't feel exactly like you were tracking with God? And what I want to say to you is, of course we have. 
And those places, whatever that is, big doubt, not knowing about queer, trying to make children, having fertility you know, issues, not knowing what's next, all of those places are these beautiful, vulnerable places where the Holy Spirit descends upon our hearts, like we sang this morning, and like finds a hole in our soul to fill up with love. Amen? Not, not like I'm so fortified, you know, and I've got it together, but that soft place where the Spirit can enter in and really blow around in us and remind us that we're awesome and lovable and gifted and good. And those gifts, both the uk and the good, are the gifts to give the world. That's our testimony. The scripture would say, while we were yet sinners, God came in the world to be with us. While we were imperfect, God came to be with us. While we didn't know what was happening, God came to love us. And that's, that's my story, and you have a story like that. And the world needs our stories. This Pentecost miracle is a miracle of translation. It's the good news of God's deeds of power that are told to these gathered people from all over the world by these Aramaic non-literate folk. Not multivocal folk, not I speak French and Spanish and Portuguese folk, but I speak Aramaic. And you heard me, you got it. Howard Gardner says, leaders tell compelling stories that change the stories already at work in the mind of followers. Let me say that again. He's a psychologist and he says, leaders tell compelling stories that change the story already in the mind of followers. Leaders tell stories that change the story. So our, our Pentecost job, having been lit by spirit, having spirit blow through our funky, waspy, mildewy life. <laughs> Y'all see it, right? <laughs> Cleaning out the cobwebs, touching us in the vulnerable space, that our job is to tell the story of how good God is in the language that they can hear it, in Espanol, in Mandarin, but also in young people talk and also in doubter speak. And that's why we at Middle speak Jewish, Buddhist, Muslim. I love, I love when Muhammad takes communion. Where is he? <laughs> we speak doubter. We speak agnostic. We speak super Christian. But we speak it all because we have to speak it all so that nobody has to miss the news because God knows we need to change the story, right? That's right, Ella. You tell them, honey. <laughs> the stories that are out there are cruel and mean. They're Adam and God made Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. Isn't that the stupidest thing you ever want to hear? That's a stupid story. <laughs> the hell? And it, and it limits God, really. Like, like she ain't got no imagination. It's a, it's, a, it's a false story. It's a lie. And all those stories that are out there, Native Americans are alcoholics and Latino people like red, and white people can't jump. And, you know. <laughs> Somebody here saying, that's true. 
and, and, and white people are better than black people, better than brown people, right? That's crazy. Those stories need our intervention. Those stories need us to translate the good news of God's love in the languages that little ones can understand. Oh, we're back in love now. <laughs> I see how you... I see how you do me. <laughs> that water was cold, Auntie. Um, inside ourselves is locked up the truths we know. We know these truths. We don't believe that stuff. But sometimes we're silent. Sometimes we don't stand up. Sometimes we don't take a risk. I'm telling you, it's your job to not be silent. Howard Thurman said, don't be silent because there's so much power to be unleashed in you. You've got the Pentecost power, baby. Not me and Bertram and Amanda in our red robes. Yes, us. Yes, the staff. Yes, yes. Yes, the choir. Yes, we've got the power. And yes, Middle Church is having an impact in the world. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. May 16th, as recently as May 16th, somebody watched our bold new love Christmas thing and sent a note saying, oh my God, I've never seen any place like that. They're quoting us at the Center for Action and Contemplation. They're looking us up online. Somebody called me and asked me, could they use our Pentecost worship from 2017 in their worship today? You're doing that, Middle, and you got to own that. Amen. but I'm also talking about something else. I want you to own what we're doing in mass. But every single person in this room and anybody online listening, you have power all by yourself to change the story and a calling to do it right there in the classroom right there in your consulting practice, right there when you're at the office, right there when you're volunteering to watch kids, right there when you're parenting your babies, right exactly where you are, you're the only one who is exactly like you with your story through which to tell the story. Nobody else has your story. The gospel will be bent through your story and the person who will hear it from you needs to hear exactly what you have to say to heal the world, to calm the torrent in them, to make this movement of love and justice happen. It is your calling because the spirit has come to speak truth to power everywhere you can in your sphere of influence. That's your job. That's what Pentecost is about. It's a miracle of communication. And the thing we have to communicate is something that will radically alter the story of America. Now. Yes, that's right. So, I'm calling on you, imploring you, beseeching you, exhorting you to not let this thing, this story, feel like some otherworldly fires landing, 
and we can ignore it. I'm asking you to hear the truth of the story. Those Aramaic folks knew how to translate and did by God <laughs> and through power of spirit and you know how to do it as well. So singing in the choir, making butterfly sandwiches, but also on the subway, on the street, at your mama and them's house. Everywhere you are, you are a Pentecost power at work in the world. And I'm asking you to do this with, the, with love and with a sense of urgency because these are hot mess times. And only those of us who get it will get it until they get it. And they get it because we give it. Somebody say amen. 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 amen.